When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. While its diegetic music has gone through changes over the years, the beginning of Return of the Jedi is a triumphant musical adventure. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this is part two of our look at Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, a film from 1983 produced by George Lucas and Howard Kazanjian, directed by Richard Marquand, with a film score by John Williams. By the end of 1980... The English recording studio known as Anvil Studios in Denham, the home of the Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back orchestral recordings, had been sold and demolished by its new owner. As a result, legendary recording engineer Eric Tomlinson had to find a new home for his work. So he and his music team moved to Abbey Road Studios in St. John's Wood, London. And it was there that the score for the later-to-be-renamed Revenge of the Jedi was recorded in 10 days over a period beginning on Monday, January 17, 1983, with its first session, and finishing up on Sunday, March 6, 1983. With the exception of its diegetic music, and one day spent recording the orchestra at Olympic Studios, which we'll talk about as we get later into the film, this score was recorded entirely in Abbey Road's Studio One, which would be the future home of scores recorded for the Star Wars prequels as well, years later. But let's get right into the action. We opened with a recording of Alfred Newman's 20th Century Fox fanfare from 1933 with the expanded Cinescope edition in 1958. This particular recording that we just heard was made for Empire Strikes Back a few years earlier and is reused at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. But since Eric Tomlinson, the engineer, is the same recording engineer on both films and he even used the same microphone setups, he paid careful attention always to match his recordings from cue to cue as best as he could. From the fanfare, we move into the glorious recording from Return of the Jedi of the main title, moving straight into Approaching the Death Star. Here, along with the obvious Imperial March, we hear a new little motif that goes. 
Something that alludes to or sets up a theme that we'll hear later in the film during the final battle in this same location. But other than that, this cue keeps us in familiar territory. The might of the Empire and the power of Darth Vader as we're quickly reminded of the terrifying Empire in this scene. But terrifying to whom? There's not a rebel or a galactic citizen in sight. Ah, yes, Vader is terrifying even to other Imperials. This dread that Williams has us feeling with this music, this unsettling menace, is the same dread being felt by poor Moff Jared in this scene, played perfectly by actor Michael Pennington, just sweating it out on behalf of all of us. That's right. The music works with Jared to remind us that Vader is so bad that even his allies are terrified. And with the announcement of the Emperor, who will arrive later, the terror just gets way, way worse. What's interesting is that, for those of you who have the expanded soundtrack releases from 1997, then again in 2004, the cue that we're listening to continues into a scene that has been deleted from the film which we were finally able to see when Jedi was released on Blu-ray in 2012. In this deleted scene, Vader leaves the Death Star hangar and Jarjarid behind and goes down a hall to his meditation chamber, where he reaches out to Luke via the Force. He connects with Luke, who we see wearing a Jedi robe and constructing a new lightsaber of his own. He ignites it, places it in R2, and we carry on with a scene with our two droids. Let's listen to this deleted scene. The Emperor is not as forgiving as I am. Even this deleted scene, as presented to us on the Blu-ray, is filled with music edits. On the soundtrack, the music for this sequence is actually much longer, suggesting that the scene was initially much more detailed and longer. And there's a lot there to notice about this music, thematically. First, as Vader goes down the hall, we get that new theme again for the Empire. But it um bump that one. And we also get the Imperial March, once again showing us that this is definitely Vader's new theme, just as it did in Empire. Oh, and I also hear some flanging, sweeping, low-end synthesizer in this clip. But how about this little note from the Celeste? To kick off Vader first reaching out to Luke. Like an evil, ironic twist on a lullaby suggesting the parental relationship, but then quickly twists as it continues with heart plucks and and creepy strings and... What's interesting is that while this scene was deleted, that low sweeping synth tone that we just heard will be heard again later in the film. But more on that when we get to it. Moving on, as we see Luke, we hear tone clusters outlining the opening fifth of Luke's theme. 
Has Luke turned to the dark side? Is he good or is he evil? Then we get Luke's theme again in the low brass, reassuring us that he's on the right path, well, we hope, as we see him with R2 and 3PO. You know, I like that this scene was deleted in that it gives Luke a much more dramatic entrance later on in the film, and it sort of sustains the doubt as to whether or not Vader is actually Luke's father. This movie is filled with family revelations, and William's music is saved for maximum impact later. But on with the droids, past the deleted scene, back to the cut of the film that we all know. We meet the droids on Tatooine on the road to Jabba's palace, and we hear this music. We can immediately hear that the droid's theme from Empire has been dropped, this theme here. But this new music has a similar mischievous feel and gives us some light-hearted comic relief. But where does this melody come from? Does it come from anywhere? Well. Those repeating notes from the woodwinds right here? Bear a striking resemblance to the B section of Jabba's main melody and its repeating notes right here. So what we have in this sequence is a droidified version of Jabba's melody as they make their way to his palace. As we'll find, Jabba's theme, written for the tuba, survives in Jedi almost entirely in the woodwind section only. But now, for our first example of diegetic source music in Star Wars since the original in 1977. As our two droids enter Jabba's throne room, we hear some diegetic music that Williams calls Jabba's Baroque Recital. This is an obvious throwback to the aristocracy of Europe, particularly before the period known as the Enlightenment in the 18th century. Back in the 17th century, during the Baroque period, music like this was heard only by the elite at court. But even then, aristocrats abounded at the local level. Jabba, as we first see him in his disgusting appearance, is set against this music. This immediately triggers a sense of irony. This is a local gangster in the middle of nowhere playing at importance. Like a mobster who buys a European palace filled with tapestries. Ooh, this place is nice, hey, I'm classy here. Make yourself comfy, hey. Tuba frog? No? Great, more for me. Mm. Ah, hookah pipe? No? Suit yourself. Anyway, as Jabba points out Han Solo, frozen in carbonite on the wall, the diegetic music fades and suddenly a rush of weeping strings takes over. As if the galaxy and legions of Star Wars fans cry out in anguish at seeing Solo in his state of suspended animation. That jerk Jabba has him hanging on the wall like art? Ugh. Later, when the droids are escorted to the depths of the palace to a droid torture room to be reassigned, we hear the music shift. This kind of parallel motion in the music's harmony echoes another droid graveyard that we heard in the first film, when R2 and 3PO were aboard the Jawa's sandcrawler surrounded by droids and droid corpses.
But now, the next section gets really, really fascinating. This is where we start going in two separate directions with the soundtrack. Jabba's court band, Max Rebo's band, the blue keyboardist, plays some original music for Jabba as Ula, the Twi'lek slave, is forced to dance. In the original 1983 release of Jedi, the piece of music was different than what it is currently in the movie, as it was changed in 1997 to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the original Star Wars when all three movies in the classic trilogy were re-released in movie theaters, which was a huge financial success, by the way, paving a clear path to a whole new trilogy of prequels beginning two years later in 1999. But with new digital tools, George Lucas and ILM set about to changing this whole musical sequence, updating the creatures, and making something totally new. Let's start with the old piece of music, the piece that lived in the film from 1983 to 1997. It's a piece of music called Lapty Neck, an odd disco-esque tune that really captures the strange atmosphere of Jabba's palace. This sequence, and the new sequence, is kind of like Jabba shrugging off all pretenses of sophistication, like we heard in Jabba's Baroque recital, and just deciding to throw a party. It's getting close to nighttime at the palace, and the atmosphere isn't nearly as sleepy as it was earlier that day. Let's hear a bit of Lapty Neck from the original 83 release. are in Huttese, a language invented by sound designer Ben Burt and Jabba the Hutt voice actor and language consultant Larry Ward. But the vocals in the movie actually come from sound department employee Annie Arbogast, who wrote the lyrics and sang the vocals herself. The music of the song was written by John Williams' son, Joseph Williams, a composer and songwriter in his own right, as well as a session vocalist on many, many recordings for Disney and others. In fact, he later went on to become the lead singer of the rock band Toto. Now, there are a lot of different versions of Lapty Neck floating around. Besides what we hear in the movie, there is an English version of this song. And then there's yet another version on the original soundtrack album for Jedi, where John Williams brought in a different singer to sing the Hutties' lyrics. Lapty Neck. Jabba's band was designed by Phil Tippett. He's head of the Creature Shop at Industrial Light and Magic. Coming down to the, one of the more amusing things will be to have this, have a vocalist. How about Snooty? See, so we can have Herbie the singer. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Except it's a tiny little mouth. <laughs> She's 
going to sing lyrics, we're going to have to articulate her mouth. Well, yeah, it would have to be a... What it means is we'd have to figure out a way of opening the mouth and, and making it at least open and close. The thing is, it doesn't have to be articulate. All it has to do is be able to open and close. It's a binary system, which it goes like this, 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 wow, this, 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 this. And that gives us some room to yeah. come up with some lyrics and make a song. It also gives us a great way of spotlighting. Okay, ready? Miss Snooty's basic movements were provided by puppeteer Tim Rose, working below her stage. His legs were connected to hers by rods, so she could duplicate his steps precisely. Her microphone was also controlled from below stage, also by a rod. This, in turn, controlled movement of Snooty's snoot, which was connected to the mic by a wire that would be invisible in the final film. Well, this all changed in 1997. This musical section in Jabba's Palace was expanded to include a few different pieces of music. Right after the droid torture scene, we cut back to Jabba's Palace where Ula and another woman named Yarna Del Gargon are dancing to a new tune driven by an amplified harmonica played by a new computer graphics alien sitting on the stage. When the piece ends, Jabba asks for a second piece. The harmonica alien starts it up, but is interrupted by a different CG alien, called a Yuzum, who counts off a whole new piece. When the piece begins, we suddenly have a complete bandstand of aliens, including the Yuzum, the harmonica player, a horn section, background singers, drummers, and a new computer graphic version of our lead singer, Cy Snoodles, who was a puppet in the original version. Let's take a listen to the new scene with the new music. Very, very different. So, why the change? Why replace this sequence and update the music? Well, we have some clues as to why all three of these original classic trilogy films went through the changes that were made in 1997, and they all seem to center around long-held frustrations by the filmmakers. In the case of Return of the Jedi, it wasn't just George Lucas that was unhappy with the music in this particular sequence. Here's a quote from Jonathan Rinsler's book, the making of Return of the Jedi. Quote, In Jabba's throne room, a dance number was performed, with Gargan and Ula, the performers, and Sai Snoodles with Jagger Lips, the singer. We had a song, which will probably be changed because it was a little bit disco, and I can't stand disco, says Marquand. I think it's awful, and George isn't wild about it either. In fact, John Williams' son composed and sang it for us, so we had a guide track. The band, plus the dancers, knew what they were going to be doing way ahead. They had been rehearsing it for weeks and weeks without me, and then finally with me, end quote. So the music wasn't their first choice. But in not knowing exactly what they did want, Lapty Neck is where they landed. A second reason for the change, perhaps. One of the creatures, the Yuzum, is based on a concept of a creature that was in the earliest drafts of Lucas's script for Jedi, and was an early concept art sketch for what would eventually become the Ewoks. Why was it changed? Because the art for the Yuzums featured characters with these long, spindly legs, and this simply couldn't be done with actors in suits. 
and was impractical as puppetry on the scale that the script demanded. So as a result, the Yuzum, that original design, was just a background creature in Jabba's palace in Jedi. In fact, there's B-roll from the set of a rubber Yuzum being bolted or attached through the wall to make it even appear to stand upright. Surely this must have been a frustration in the early 80s. Well now, with ILM pioneering digital creatures in features like Jurassic Park and other films just a few years prior, there was an explosion of creative energy and enthusiasm for a new digital freedom that made this kind of sequence even possible. Suddenly you could do the yuzums. Suddenly you could do more with Zeiss Noodles as a singer. This resulted in the need and desire for a new music track, one that gave Lucas the opportunity to have fun with the sequence in a way that he never could have when these movies were originally produced. Jazz composer and trumpet player Jerry Hay was brought in to write and record the new tracks, which were recorded at Lansdowne Studios in London on October 20th, 1996. This whole dance party is finally interrupted when Jabba sends Ula, the enslaved dancer, to her death at the hands of his pet Rancor. Everyone watches the gruesome ordeal, and Jabba eats a frog to celebrate. But they're interrupted by Chewbacca and Bausch, a bounty hunter who is, of course, Leia in disguise. Bausch demands a bounty for Chewbacca from Jabba, and as they haggle, we hear the first complete statement of Jabba's theme in the whole film, courtesy of the woodwind section. By the way, Bausch was voiced by a woman named Pat Welsh, who Ben Burt discovered in a camera store in San Anselmo, California. He asked her to voice E.T., the extraterrestrial, which he was working on at the time. She was then brought back for Jedi to voice this role, though her voice is also run through an effect called a ring modulator. You know, you know. Anyway, as Chewbacca is dragged away to the dungeon, we hear another piece of music from Jabba's house band, and it sounds like this. Sadly, this unnamed piece, well, sometimes it's referred to as the sail barge dance as it plays again later in the film, this unnamed piece has never been released. Of all the soundtrack releases we've had, this piece has never come out commercially. It features drums, synths, and what kind of sounds like an English horn or alto sax on the lead part. Some kind of woodwind. This piece is actually from the original film, and like Jabba's Baroque recital, has remained intact ever since 1983. By the way, along with the piece of Jedi Rocks that we do hear in the movie, the new piece that was recorded in the 90s, another piece was recorded besides that one, and the harmonica piece at the top of the scene that we talked about. Though this new section that I'm about to play could be a reworking of that harmonica piece, but anyway, it's the back half of Jedi Rocks that's on the soundtrack album. It's kind of a James Brown-like jam, and it goes like this. Now, this piece, as we're hearing it, has never been used in the film. Which brings me to another question. Was this piece meant to replace that unnamed Max Rebo Band cue, the sail barge dance? Maybe it was, but either way, it didn't make the cut. I should say, for the record, that I actually prefer Lapty Neck in all of its odd disco glory, with its unpolished, character-driven lead vocal. Maybe it's because it's the one that I first fell in love with. 
but I also prefer it because I feel like it better matches the other piece of music that's still in the film. But honestly, had I grown up with Jedi Rocks, I would have been absolutely captivated by the fun and spectacle of it all. And I do maintain that it is absolutely in line with the vision that Lucas and Marquand had for the sequence originally, but were just lacking the tools to bring it to life. Either way, Jedi Rocks and this whole opening sequence isn't the last diegetic music that we'll hear in Return of the Jedi. And now for a brief intermission. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We return now to the soundtrack show. Late at night, when everyone in the palace has seemingly passed out, a shadowy figure sneaks through the throne room to release Han Solo. As Han comes to, and Bausch's mask is removed, revealing that it's actually Leia, we hear Han and Leia's love theme. When they're caught and Jabba confronts Solo, we hear Jabba's theme again with the woodwinds, lightly, subtly in the background. It's not my fault. Now this is different than what was originally intended. Here's the same moment from the soundtrack album as originally scored. This is the second time that a tuba-driven version of the theme has been cut from the movie. The first was when Ula was dancing and Jabba sent her to her doom. Originally, this was Jabba's underscore as Ula met her demise. With Han, Chewbacca, 3PO, R2, Leia, and wow, Lando's here too in disguise? Now that the gang is all here, who are we missing? Enter Luke Skywalker. Instead of speaking calmly in mild-mannered voice via a hologram like he did earlier, he enters as a shadowy figure in the early hours of the morning. As we establish Jabba's palace in the dawn hours, with everyone visibly sleeping this time, we hear that low-pulse, throbbing synthesizer again, signaling Luke's entrance. Has he fallen to the dark side? Well, he's in all black with a hood, and he force chokes a couple of guards. More synth and a little of the surviving tuba over a sleeping Jabba. Master! Oh. Have no pace, Luke Skywalker, Jedi Knight. Luke is carefully shrouded in mystery by the filmmakers, all part of a larger payoff that's going to come at the end of this entire sequence. But first, a challenge. Negotiations with Jabba don't go well, and Luke is dropped into the Rancor Pit. Here... We get our first real action cue from John Williams, and it is full-on monster music. <laughs> <laughs> 
Listen to those metallic clanks, giving us sonic reminders of the prison gates, the chains of Jabba's prisoners, the captive Luke in a hopeless situation. Hear those ripping French horns, signifying terror. screaming woodwinds. But through it all, we get heroism too, as we hear the Force theme for the first time in the movie. vanquishes the Rancor, and meets up with all of our heroes. But they're all sentenced to die. We cut ahead in time, and Jabba and his entire palace entourage, and his armed personnel, are on a yacht sailing through the desert out to celebrate the execution of our heroes via the Sarlacc monster. And this next sequence, the one that I loudly celebrated in our last episode of the Soundtrack Show, This sequence is an exciting conclusion to what really boils down to being a micro-adventure with our heroes before we settle into the main plot of the film. The whole opening of Jedi feels like an episode of Star Wars in a season of television before we end up coming closer to the series finale. Jabba's sail barge has stopped over the Sarlacc pit. Everyone's in position. The tension is building. And John Williams steps into the action. First, with some stingers for tension. On each brass hit, we get a different reaction shot from a different character. This is classic tension building, almost straight out of a spaghetti western. Are we going to witness an execution? Or a shootout? Yeah, just as I thought, it's the latter. Let's listen. is filled with heroism. We immediately get Luke's theme, followed by the rebel fanfare as our whole gang springs into action. This music is straight out of the first film. Our heroes are reunited in such a satisfying way here. This action scene goes on for a full five minutes, filled with a dizzying amount of edits, special effects, stunts, and microplots to follow. Luke rescues Leia, Leia kills Jabba and rescues herself again. Han kills Boba Fett, rescues Lando, Chewie rescues Han, our droids end up in the sand dunes, Luke gets injured in the hand again, Leia points a giant turret gun at the deck, and the whole gang speeds away on a stolen skiff as the sail barge explodes in a satisfying ball of fire. Wow. 
But this sequence didn't come about so easily. In fact, it was the last sequence completed in the entire film, as it went through dozens of picture and editorial changes. According to Ben Burtt, it was the last scene that they mixed sound on, and John Williams had to rescore the piece in order to keep up with the picture changes. Normally, you mix a film from the beginning to the end in the order that the scenes occur. But because this film was being put together when we started the mix of the movie, the final mix, we actually began work in the middle of the movie. We started with reel five, and then later we went back and did the beginning of the film. It's not a great way to work doing it out of context because there's always a natural flow and feel for the sound as it develops throughout the movie. But we had no choice because there were certain scenes that hadn't come together yet, and the special effects were not completed enough in many scenes to uh, warrant mixing the first few reels of the movie. The battle with the Sarlacc monster was one of the last scenes that we mixed in the film because uh, it had gone through a lot of editorial changes, and there were different versions of it kind of each week as we were getting later and later into the post-production schedule. It was a very challenging sequence editorially because typical of the Star Wars action sequence, there were so many different characters involved, all with their own simultaneous stories. And to sort it out and to keep the flow of action clear and continuous, there was quite a bit of recutting of this scene. In fact, it was scored once in London by Johnny Williams, and then the sequence was recut so many times after that that they had to go back and rescore it with a, a different cue of music. I think that that actually means that he had to do several different versions on this scene. Because the 1997 special edition soundtrack gives us a glimpse into the creative process by providing an alternate piece of music for this sail barge assault from John Williams, his first attempt at the piece. The cue that we know used to be very different. It was rewritten at George Lucas's request, much like the binary sunset cue from the first film so that it would apparently have more heroism in it, more fun. Let's hear Williams's first take on this scene. different. Flashes of that heroism, but not as blatant or as bombastic, and in my opinion, not as satisfying as what we got in the final result. I think that this retake on the music in this scene is another example of the type of fun that George wanted in this film. And the reason I say it's another example is because of Jedi Rocks. I think it's why Jedi Rocks is arguably very true to his original vision for Jedi. In fact, here's a quote from George Lucas A Life, a book by Brian J. Jones, quote, Star Wars had been born of Lucas's own love of comic books, fairy tales, and Saturday morning serials. His way, as he said at the time, of giving a new generation its own mythology. There would be no bittersweet endings, no killing off of central characters, no heroes turning evil. The whole point of the film is for you to be real uplifted, emotionally and spiritually, and feel absolutely good about life, Lucas explained to Kasdan. That is the greatest thing we could possibly ever do. Not everyone shared Lucas's optimism. George has a predisposition for happy endings, sighed Harrison Ford. Even Hamill, the comic book fan who was nearly always inclined to give the story the benefit of the doubt, admitted to being somewhat disappointed in Jedi's lack of heft, complaining to Lucas that it, quote, all seemed so pat. Lucas smiled and replied, So are fairy tales. End quote. So, this movie, 
as demonstrated by this music in the first part of the film, is a fairy tale anecdote to the darkness that our heroes went through in The Empire Strikes Back. It's the feel-good payoff. And Williams delivered it for Lucas in spades here in the sail barge assault. But not without effort, as we were saying before. I mentioned the constant picture changes, and I think that Ben Burt was saying that Williams had to fit music to the sequence multiple times as it kept changing. Even then, you can hear music edits in the sequence quite a bit. Jabba's theme is removed yet again when he's being choked and killed by Leia. Some pieces of Luke's theme were replaced later in the sequence or repeated. This is the beginning of Lucas really pushing the editorial boundaries in post-production. And for having to cut music like this back in 1983, music editor Ken Wanberg and his crew were truly miracle workers, according to producer Howard Kazanjian. Even Lucas said that this sequence was incredibly difficult saying that he was trying to model it off of what he saw Spielberg and Williams do seamlessly in a way that made it look easy in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not sure we ever really did it as well as we could have, but when you have so many different pieces of action that are supposed to be happening at exactly the same moment, you get into a very complex piece of cinema, which is editing things together that you want people to read, but you don't want to dwell on them for so long that it drags down a simultaneous moment. So I think there's always a kind of super reality that gets created in a moment like this where you're stretching time and hoping that it doesn't look like that. This is something that Steven Spielberg is very accomplished at. The best project I ever worked on where that happened is in Raiders of the Lost Ark under the flying wing. It's exactly like this sequence where you got a truck full of gas and some guys loading the truck and then you got a fight and then you got a pilot and then you got people coming from the outside then the truck catches on fire and then it's going toward the airplane and then the girl gets trapped in the airplane and it's very similar to this you know in that particular case i think it's done as well as it can ever be done but in this case we did it as well as we could but i always had this nagging feeling that we could have done it better it's a very delicate balance of having the audience be able to follow it and not having it look corny Jabba the Hutt has been defeated. As our heroes fly away from Tatooine, they gear up to face the film's real adventure and their biggest challenge yet. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Meanwhile, back on the second Death Star, a parade-like display of military might with swarms of TIE fighters circling the perimeter. The music is the grandiose martial sound of the Imperial March in all of its glory. As we cut to one of the Death Star's hangars, we find out what all the fuss is about. A giant assembly of troopers and officers greet a shuttle, and as we close in on a tighter shot, we see Vader, surrounded by guards in red, actually bow in front of this shuttle. Oh, we know who's coming. As the Emperor disembarks, slowly, he is accompanied by a slithering melody, sung by low winds and male voices. In spite of all this pomp and circumstance, the air is totally sucked out of the room, so to speak, when the Emperor appears. He's that powerful, that evil. The music provides a laser focus to this mysterious evil. We cut to Dagobah, just the sounds of a swamp, until we find ourselves back in a familiar setting, Yoda's small home with a warm fire. We hear, as we did in Empire, quiet versions of Yoda's theme, building, 
that face you make. But often falling apart melodically. Look, I so old to young eyes. No. As Williams alters the interval leaps. I do. Something's wrong. <coughs> oh, he's coughing now. Yes, I do. Sick have I become. I heard him weak. He's preparing to die. When 900 years old you reach, look as good you are not. Hmm? <laughs> Soon will I rest. Yes. Forever sleep. Hmm. did I have. Master Yoda, you can't die. Strong am I with the Force, but not that strong. Suddenly, we hear a somber version of the Force theme. Twilight is upon me, and soon night must fall. Then back to Yoda's theme, this time a full statement. That is the way of things. The way of the Force. But I need your help. I've come back to complete the training. No more training do you require. Already know you that which you need. Then I am a Jedi. <laughs> but followed by a modified statement that leads us to talk of Not Vader. Yet. One thing remains. And Vader's theme, the Imperial March. Vader. You must confront Vader. Then, only then. A Jedi will you be. And then on talk of Luke confronting Vader, and confront him you will. We are led to Luke's theme. Master Yoda. This whole passage is a textbook example of musical storytelling via leitmotifs, as Williams twists them, turns them, as the saga's main plot twist is finally solidified. Right here, after a suspenseful musical moment, when Yoda admits to Luke that Vader is indeed his father. Your father he is. We get a full, dread-filled, but gentle statement of the Force theme. And unfortunate. Unfortunate that I know the truth. This is followed by Yoda's theme. That you rushed to face him. That incomplete was your training. That not ready for the burden were you. Nobly stated as he comforts Luke about all I'm that sorry. has happened and why. Remember, a Jedi's strength flows from the Force. But beware. Anger, fear. The dark side are they. Then he warns Luke of the dark Once side. you start down the dark path, the music shifts. Forever will it dominate your destiny. Luke. No. Luke. Do not. Suspense. Yoda's last words? Do not underestimate the powers of the Emperor. Or suffer your father's fate, you will. If not now, soon. Luke, when gone am I? The last of the Jedi will you be. Luke now knows he's the last Jedi. And now, the Force theme again. Against a modified version of Yoda's theme. And on his last breath, a final note, with a solo French horn playing Yoda's theme. 
as he becomes one with the force, minor strings play a short, funeral-like procession. lives in the loss as William's music continues. That is, until Obi-Wan appears. Yoda will always be with you. Obi-Wan. The moment is broken, and Luke wants answers. The music stays out of this whole conversation that follows next between Obi-Wan and Luke, all about Darth Vader. That is, until there is yet another huge Skywalker family revelation. Upon hearing the news, we hear Leia's theme for the first time in the film. Leia. Leia's my sister. Your insight serves you well. Bury your feelings deep down, Luke. They do you credit, but they could be made to serve the Emperor. This transitions us back to the Rebel fleet as trumpets play an earnest minor line while X-Wings fly past medical frigates, corvettes, and Mon Calamari cruisers. But before we move on to the next scene, it's worth noting that the scene with Obi-Wan and Luke is another example of music that was scored for a scene, but then partially omitted. Let's hear a bit of this scene as it exists in the final film without the music. Why didn't you tell me? You told me Vader betrayed and murdered my father. Your father was seduced by the dark side of the Force. He ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. When that happened, the good man who was your father was destroyed. So what I told you was true, from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Anakin was a good friend. As this conversation continues, the music eventually kicks in once the Leia revelation happens. That is the reason why your sister remains safely anonymous. Leia. Leia is my sister. Your insight serves you well. But now let's hear this same scene again with the music that Williams wrote. Keep in mind that we've had solid music, including major, major themes, since we entered Yoda's home. And this scene is after witnessing Yoda's death. Why didn't you tell me? You told me Vader betrayed and murdered my father. Your father? was seduced by the dark side of the Force. He ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. When that happened, the good man who was your father was destroyed. So what I told you was true, from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Anakin was a good friend. When I first knew him, your father was already a great pilot, but I was amazed how strongly the Force was with him. I took it upon myself to train him as a Jedi. I thought that I could instruct him just as well as Yoda. I was wrong. There is still good in him. He's more machine now than man, twisted and evil. I can't do it, Ben. You cannot escape your destiny. You must face Darth Vader again. I can't kill my own father. Then the Emperor has already won. You were our only hope. Yoda spoke of another. The other he spoke of is your twin sister. But I have no sister. Hmm. To protect you both from the Emperor, you were hidden from your father when you were born. The Emperor knew, as I do, 
If Anakin were to have any offspring, they would be a threat to him. That is the reason why your sister remains safely anonymous. Leia. Leia is my sister. Your insight serves you well. You know, I feel, as I'm sure the filmmakers did, that this musical passage here didn't add much to the scene. And actually, in a way, robs the sister revelation of its power. Also, by giving us that musical interrupt that is in the final movie, it gives us much-needed moments of normalcy. A breather! A break! So that we can ask questions with Luke before being hit with this movie's huge revelation that Leia and Luke are twins. Speaking of Leia, let's get back to the next scene, the assembly of the Rebel Alliance. This informational scene is what George Lucas calls a pointer scene. This briefing room scene is what we call the pointer scene. A pointer scene is where you sit down and tell the audience all the things that have to happen or are going to happen in the next rest of the movie so they can follow the plot. You know, we have to go to the castle. This is the way we get to the castle. These are the dangers that we have to overcome, and then there's the prize at the end. And there is, in almost every movie, a pointer scene where everybody sits down and says, this is what's going to happen. And in some scenes, it's just very blatant. You know, they have a chalkboard and a pointer, and they draw a diagram and say, this is what we have to do. Well, that may be the case. This may be exposition. But why does it feel so good? Even while getting heavy news about the dangerous mission ahead. Well, part of it might be because we're finally seeing our heroes in their own comfortable environment for the first time since the medal ceremony at the end of A New Hope. I mean, that's for sure a reason. But I also think this scene feels so good because of the music. The music starts out as a creeping realization of importance. After announcing that it's indeed time to attack this new Death Star because of new information about a flaw that they can exploit, Mon Mothma announces the real information. Rather than being on Coruscant, that impenetrable Imperial stronghold at the center of the galaxy, the Emperor himself is actually at the second Death Star, their intended target. That's huge. They could take him out. After the weight of that knowledge sinks in, and that the knowledge itself came at great cost to obtain, we then proceed with how all this is going to happen. And as we do, listen to the change in the music. It's lifting, rising slowly, building in determination. But why is this music somehow also familiar? Well, it's as if the Force theme is poking its head out from under this determined rebel briefing music. It carries the same rhythmic shape here. Da, 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 dum, dum, da, 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 dum, dum. And even the rebel fanfare is coming to the forefront here. Dee, da, dee, da, dee, dee, dum, da, dee, dum, ba, da, ba, liam, bum. Williams is subtly telling us that the Force is truly with our rebel heroes. And what interrupts this briefing? A happy reunion, as Luke has arrived to join his friends. And here we hear a light version of Luke's theme, as he, for the first time, knowingly greets his own sister. Oh, it's so feel-good, isn't it? Our heroes are finally out of the defensive mode and are going on the offensive for the first time. Then, as our main cast, Luke, Leia, Han, Chewbacca, and the droids, leave the Rebel fleet in the stolen Imperial shuttle with a strike team, the music darkens. get a drastic change in tone as the Emperor is seen in his throne room.
This is followed by the arrival of the stolen shuttle with our rebel heroes at the second Death Star. And we get a tentative statement of the descending line in the Imperial March, right here. If the music is saying, hi, we're Imperials. Mm-hmm. Are they going to buy it? Vader's on that ship. Oh, no. Uh, don't get jittery, Luke. There are a lot of command ships. <clears throat> Luke senses Darth Vader. And we hear the Force theme. Does that mean Vader senses Luke? Oh, he certainly seems to know something as we hear the Imperial March. Where is that shuttle going? Shuttle and Tidurian, what is your cargo and destination? Parts and technical crew for the forest moon. Do they have a code clearance? It's an older code, sir, but it checks out. I was about to clear them. Oh, then the force theme again. I'm endangering the mission. I shouldn't have come. It's your imagination, kid. Come on, let's keep a little optimism. What's gonna happen? What does Vader know? Shall I hold? No. Leave them to me. I will deal with them myself. Uh, uh, oh boy. No. He knows. he knows. Carry on. Shuttle Tidarian. Deactivation of the shield will commence immediately. Follow your present course. Okay. I told you it was gonna work. No problem. On the next episode of The Soundtrack Show, we'll continue our analysis of Return of the Jedi by looking at the second half of the movie, the forest moon of Endor, the Ewoks, and the climactic operatic battle between good and evil that finally brings balance to the Force. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.